Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 32 of the podcast, the topic is Future-Proof Your Business. Our guest is Tom Cheesewright, UK futurist, regular BBC commentator and author of the new book, Future-Proof Your Business. In this conversation, we talk about the role of a futurist in a fast-moving world, the tools needed to predict future trends in your industry, how to build in agility, futurist predictions that can easily be tested against history, and the forces shaping tomorrow, how the pandemic has changed leaders' thinking, and preparing for future shocks. Lastly, what the next decade might bring. Quick word from our sponsor. Do you have business challenges where you would like high-quality external input from experts? Yegi is an insight network with access to on-demand teams made up of select talent from thousands of experts. Check out Yegi at archives.yegi.com. That's Y-E-G-I-I. Tom, how are you doing today? Yeah, good, thank you. Good. Enjoying the fact that it's not raining here in Manchester for once. <laughs> Manchester, I like it. You yeah. know, I'm Norwegian. It's a big uh, soccer town for us. Yeah, absolutely. I, I regularly bump into sort of hordes of Norwegians in the city centre, uh, enjoying the latest Manchester United. Well, I was going to say success, more success recently, but yeah. It's, yeah, uh, that's they, right. They, 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 they can be good fun groups to join when they're drinking, this is for sure. <laughs> so, uh, well, I, I mean, are they still doing this? I, are, do you have <laughs> COVID right up now, there? Not right now. Although I have very fond memories. There is, a, uh, there is a, a ferry or a boat that goes over from Norway to Sweden and back again, um, where you basically, basically all you can eat and all you can drink for a fixed fee, which obviously in Norway with the price of alcohol is very appealing. So we once spent a very interesting evening on the boat from Norway to Sweden getting, we got, we thought we got quite drunk, but nowhere near as drunk as these enormous uh, Norwegian men who spent the entire journey back chatting up our wives. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is slightly different from our, our topic today, although, although <laughs> I, I guess, uh, uh, I guess part of future proofing is, has to do with uh, our public behavior these days. So there, there is a link. Yes, I'm absolutely. desperately trying to make the link. <laughs> back to something uh, uh, publishable, right? Um, well, Tom, listen, I, I, I got you on the show uh, to talk about many things, your, your book, your, uh, your background, your interesting uh, stories of the future. Let me see if I can uh, do a good job at summarizing what you've been up to, and then please correct me. So it seems like, you know, you are, for the last 14 years, you've been a, you've been a futurist. And... Uh, the origin of that I have traced back to this very interesting bachelor's degree in mechatronics from Lancaster University. And let me just, for the benefit of those of my listeners who don't study mechatronics. So I found this definition. It's a multidisciplinary branch of engineering that focuses on electrical and mechanical systems and includes a combination of robotics, electronics, computer, telecommunications, control, and product engineering. That's How's a pretty that? good. So that's a, that's a better summary than I've ever done of it. I think I spent <laughs> I spent the last how long is it now? Twenty two years explaining to people what mechatronics was, and you've done a better job of it in your first go. So well done. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so uh, so then I found that you know in these fourteen years you've been working for a bunch of corporations. So you know these are uh, some of the names that people will recognize from the from the FTSE and from the Fortune five hundred lists. You know things. Uh, you know companies like uh, Audi, Barclays. You know, a wide array of industries, even Kellogg's, Virgin Media. Um, you've written two books. The latest one we'll, we'll focus on today. Um, first one, I think, was High Frequency Change. And then uh, Future Proof Your Business from, uh, you know, on Penguin is out this summer. Um, and I, I believe in the UK, you must be a little bit of a household name for people who care about technology. Is that, is that right? Because you appear on, there's this local media called BBC, right? Yeah, I pop up there probably two or three times a week. Um, yeah, yeah, household name would be overselling it dramatically it, 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 because there is such a breadth of output these days. I mean, I've done something in the region of 2000 broadcast interviews on TV and radio now, and still most people have no idea who I am. Um, but, you know, there's the, the regular listeners to, to show to national stations like Five Live will probably probably remember the name at least. Well, that's good to hear. So listen, you've done all of these interesting things. Um, 
Is there one thing that would, you would say brought you here? I mean, it would be very obvious for me to say it was the mechatronics degree. And in fact, when I looked at online uh, profiles and, and stuff of you, that's what they said. You know, you, you got this degree and then you became a futurist. How, how do you see it? I think you can trace it back a lot further than that. Um, there's, you know, um, Toddler Tom, age three. It's a book fair in uh, in part of Ealing, part of London in 1981, uh, when my mum bought me the Usborne Book of the Future. And uh, I still got it, actually. It's my very tattered copy is on my shelves over there. I still refer to it now and again. And that really, that combined with growing up in the age of Star Wars and Star Trek and all this incredible science fiction really set me on that path. Um, and I've always been kind of obsessed about what might be, what could be. Um, the, the great thing about the mechatronics degree was, was it's, it's about thinking. You know, it gives you a great grounding in how to understand systems and processes. And I mean, you know, absolutely technology, which has been a, a huge part of my career up to this point. Um, and remains, I think, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer that the human ability to take our understanding of the world and translate it into tools that enable us to do more is a really critical part of what makes us you know, the, the sort of the dominant race on this planet. And so, um, you know, I think understanding that's been really important. But really, it, I think if you trace it back to one thing, it comes back to that that passion. The great thing about being a futurist is, as you say, I get to jump in and out of different industries. I get to go and work in banking for six weeks and then work in food for six weeks and then go and you know work with Facebook or Google and, and try and understand their businesses. And, and that ability to jump around and keep learning and keep engaging with new things is, is, is what really made it appeal to me. I, I find it interesting that you're sitting in your, what I take to be your studio because, uh, <laughs> and, I, and I believe you've mentioned this before, right? That now people know who you are. And, and I guess the same is, is for me, because if someone, if someone was to inquire, you know, why do you have those guitars in the background? Or, you know, I see those old school books, right? It does say a little bit about you. And I immediately am getting a more full picture of why I would believe or not believe what you're saying around technology. You see, you, you're more of a tinker than your website would indicate. So, yeah. so that's interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, the, the, tinkering, uh, the, the tinkering and the professional life sort of weave in and out of each other. Um, and so I'm always, I'm always debating with my various people who advise me and support me how much I ought to integrate those two Toms. You know, I used to have a regular slot on the BBC as a sort of techie Tom explaining technology to people and reviewing gadgets. And that's very much in line with what you can see around you. Whereas actually most of my clients these days are business people. And while technology is a part of the story I'm telling them, it's never the whole story. And more and more I'm engaged by culture and politics and these things. But absolutely, you know, if uh, I, I, my typical working day might be I get up and start work about 6.30. You know, I'll work through to about 11, have some lunch, maybe do another couple of hours. And then frankly, I'm back there tinkering. I've usually got some project or other going on. And sometimes they're completely disconnected from what I'm doing. And sometimes they're deeply integrated to what I'm doing. So, you know, a great example of this is um, end of last year, beginning of this year, I was commissioned to write a report on the future car uh, by Auto Trader. You may know big uh, online media for, for, um, yeah, for car dealerships and car trading. And then they asked me to go and look at the next 50 years of the car. And in doing so, I got really engaged in the prospect for electronic vehicles, for electric vehicles, and wanted to understand what was going on there. What are the challenges? Why are they so expensive? You know, why have we not progressed further and faster? Uh, and so I've ended up building an electric car. Um, and so, you know, outside now through my little window, I can see um, the semi-dismantled remains of a 1990s BMW. Um, behind me, I have you know, 300 volts worth of batteries sat there ready to go into it. Uh, and it's, you know, it's teaching me an awful lot about the supply chain, about the mechanics, about the underlying engineering of the electric car. You know, all things that will feed into the next report I get asked to do on the future car. So this, this tinkering, you know, as I say, it weaves in and out of my professional life. Sometimes it bears no relation and sometimes it's deeply integrated to what I do. So Tom, I wanted to ask you this. I'm, I'm actually really fascinated about uh, something related, which is, you know, these days in order to understand anything and, you know, have an idea, uh, not as a futurist, but, but more as a business person or, or even as a citizen, do you think that the tinkerer in us basically is our future that, you know, when you think about your kids or, you know, what to teach them in schools these days, is this tinkering 
fundamental to our understanding of what's going on? Or, or is it just something that you enjoy? And also you could say it's one approach to futurism, but it's not the only one. No, not at all. I mean, and it's not even sort of my, arguably my sort of primary approach, but, but is it really important? You know, tinkering combines three skills and I get asked a lot. I mean, one of the questions I get asked most at doing it you know, after dinner talks and stuff you know, by concerned parents is what should I be teaching my kids to give them a, you know, a good chance in this somewhat scary picture of the future you've painted? My answer is like, look, there's three skills. There's three things that the machines can't do that set you in really good stead, particularly in this sort of atomized future. You know, we're seeing the size of organizations shrink and individuals being increasingly responsible for their own success in society and the world. You know, freelancing being the fastest growing form of work in the UK, US, and I think now Europe as well. Um, so you know, what skills does it take to succeed in this world where you're going to be highly responsible for your own success and you're probably going to be competing more and more with machines or at least uh, machine-assisted, machine-enhanced people? And the answer is the first one is about discovery and qualification. You know, how right. good are you at understanding what's going on, picking up sources of information, qualifying them, um, and extracting the value from them. That's really, really important. And every tinkerer knows how to do that because they're always running to barriers, things they can't do, and going and finding an answer. You know, how good are you at creativity? That's the second critical skill. How good are you at finding solutions? And you know, I don't know if this problem is the same there, but here we have this real issue. And you know, sadly, recently passed, Ken Robinson was famous for pointing this out. You know, we have this really, we're really poor at teaching creativity and it's kind of dropped off the syllabus in terms of the UK curriculum. But yeah. actually, you know, creativity is this incredibly important skill. And it's not, we have this idea that you're not creative if you can't paint or draw, or, you know, if you can't make music like you, somehow you're not creative. Whereas actually creativity is really about iteration. It's a learned skill. It's a muscle that can be developed. And so this creativity, creative skill is really important. And then the final one is communication. Now, you've got to be able to either go and ask for help, ask for probably, you know, the, the support to solve your problems, or you've got to be able to go and tell people about your successes, go and sell your ideas to your colleagues and your customers. And I think you're tinkering, you know, any sort of hobby, actually, but particularly a creative hobby, is a really good way to develop and sometimes actually reawaken those skills. I, and I speak to a lot of executives later on in their careers who kind of feel like they've lost the ability to do some of these things. I'm like, go and get a hobby. Go and learn to make something. Go and learn a new sport i learned to roller skate three years ago you know go and learn one of these things because you, you will reawaken all of these skills very quickly you know one of the things that frustrates me a bit in the discussion about future of skills <clears throat> in future of work is that uh, you know there are lots of concepts you know one is this t-shaped expert uh, thing which you know is very interesting uh, as a concept but it's of course very simplified and i think the worst part of that metaphor is that it invites this thinking that there are some skills that are deeper than others, and those are the ones you should put in the deep T. And then there are some other horizontal skills where the assumption, just because of that T metaphor, is that communication and empathy and all of those other things, they're super important, but they're very shallow, and you can have 15 of them, but you can only learn one technology. And, and this, this is just absurd to me. I mean, if you know anything about human psychology, right, it's a deep topic or, you know, or, or even what you said about communication. Um, even for me, just learning the trade of, of, of this podcast, right, I've had to dig into things that have to do with communication, but I've had, I've had to rethink many, many, many things. So, you know, are they to do with the technology or not? I don't know. They certainly have to do with much deeper ways that people communicate. And I just don't find it a shallow topic. Yeah. What's your view on that? No, I completely agree. I mean, I think that, like specialisms are a joy, right? I mean, you know, learning a level of expertise in something is really joyful. Like you're know, getting good at something, I find so rewarding. And you know, again, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a trivial example, but a great one in some ways. You know, roller skating. You know, when I started to roller skate, I could barely stand on two feet. And you know, the the constant you know butting up against problems, you know, smashing elbows and wrists and cracking ribs and you know doing myself all sorts of injuries. Meanwhile, you know, eight year olds are zooming past me and making me look like an idiot. Is all part of that process. And, you know, three years later when you can sort of, you know, jump and spin and do all these cool things, the reward is incredible. And it's the same with any specialism. Now, it's not that I don't, you know, it's not that I don't need all those other skills around them. It's also that those other skills can't be deep. You know, lots of people 
are, who are relatively successful are absolutely abominable communicators, you know, or, you know, have really have not developed towards these perceived as shallow skills. And the other thing I would say about it is that actually each of those skills in themselves can be so far subdivided. You know, just think about communication itself. The people, you know, there are many people who are absolutely fantastic at getting up on stage and selling an idea to an audience who are, again, you know, absolutely dreadful at trying to communicate something visually or even trying to communicate something in the written form. And you know, there are so many sort of subdivisions to these, to these skills. You're only ever going to be expert at a very small number of them. And, uh, and so yeah, I think that the point about teaching people those three C's, that curation, that creativity, that communication, is that they're fundamental to anything else you're going to do. Like if you are, if you're going to be deep in anything, be deep in those three. Because let's be honest, you can kind of blag an awful lot of other stuff. Like yeah, you know, the, the technical skills, for example, like with your podcast, you could get a podcast out the door with relatively limited technical skills, sure. with a relatively limited amount of knowledge. You could go and watch a few YouTube videos, spend a hundred dollars on equipment, and be getting a not good, but you know, a, at least a a competent podcast out the door. Now, sure. Is it the you're probably going to if you spend another five hundred dollars another another six months the quality is probably going to ex increase exponentially, but after that yeah the, the the difference is probably going to start to tail off. But you can at least engage with an idea and get started and deliver something useful if you are deep in those three core skills. I wanted to move into your book uh, and see if some of the stuff we've been talking about now is relevant to, to what you write about in Future Proofing Your, your Business. Maybe you could uh, start um, perhaps a little bit with the tools that are needed uh, either and used by you as a futurist, but also in order for an organization to, to have an inkling because yeah. they, you know, they may use you as an outside ex expert or, or others. And there's obviously lots of ways to try to kind of prepare for external shocks by having insight from the outside. But, but it, it strikes me that you're sort of saying that that's nice, you know, for you, but, but an organization really has to start more from the inside and develop more of these core repertoires, uh, you know, uh, for themselves. So can you unbundle some, some of that for us uh, and how you lay it out in your book? Yes. I mean, the book is broken down into, into three parts, really, based on three different core aspects I think you need if you're going to build sustainable success in a business. Uh, and it's, it's, it's premised on this idea that, well, we'll come back to this in the premise, perhaps, but the, the tools to do that, one is about how you look at the future. And traditionally, futurism, when I started you know, being a, a futurist professionally, actually, even before that, most futurism, futurism that I got asked about or that I read about was generally quite long term. It was in what's going to happen in 20, 30, 40 years. Can we start to plan and strategize that? It's only at least a decade. Uh, and when, when I sort of turned pro, if you like, actually, the questions I was getting asked were, what's going to take me out of the knees in the next five years? Like, you know, not, not, I don't, I'm not really interested in sort of, you know, hoverboards and flying cars and jetpacks and you know, neural laces. I want to know, you know, I've watched loads of my peers get wiped out. How do I see the, those things coming early? And so the first thing I did was, was I could, because I couldn't find one, was build a toolkit for looking at the near future, for looking at the, uh, the near horizon and saying, what are these massive opportunities and threats that might either create a sort of exponential growth or take my business out of the knees? So the near future for, for your clients as it kind of evolved is, is kind of three to five years and not yeah, two, two sort to of five 10 plus years, absolutely. two to five years. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and I use that range because, you know, the, one of the first things you learn about futurism when you start to do it frequently and professionally is predicting what's going to happen can sometimes be quite easy. Predicting when it's going to happen is really, really hard because there are so many more variables there. So, you know, if something is possible and it's desirable, um, you know, without you know, sort of obvious um, barriers like regulation, you know, it's probably going to happen at some point. But if, but you know, there are lots of things like regulation, finance, you know, culture, pace of innovation. You know, there's so many things that can get in, way, in the way of when it happens. And so, for example, you, you go back and look at this sort of you know the work of futurists from 200 years ago, and there, there's a famous set of French postcards you know showing the the world the world in the 20th century with flying cars and all these things. It's like you know I don't think they actually got anything. They didn't actually get anything wrong in terms of what's going to happen. All they got wrong was the timeline in terms of when it's going to happen. Um, well, isn't that a challenge for a futurist these days? I mean, that was one of the things I wanted to 
uh, you know, to, to discuss with you a little bit. I mean, it's dangerous to be a futurist these days just because sometimes the speed of change is so fast that if you do predict something and you add, an, an, add a when to it, uh, you know, you'll still be alive when, they, when it's been disproven. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's, there's, there's two aspects to futurism you've got to think about. You know, one is the, you know, put your, put your, put your money on the table and you know, make some predictions. And I do that because it's fun, right? It's great fun to go, this is going to happen then and that's going to happen then. And yeah, you know, I can see the future. Uh, yeah, in reality, your job as a futurist is to open people's eyes to possibilities. Because you, you, I come back to there's loads of, there's lots of really, um, you know, formal quotes about this from great thinkers, but the best one definitely comes from Terminator and Sarah Connor. You know, there's, there's no fate but what we make. And so you know, the, minute you, the minute you as a futurist start advising a company about a possibility, you're changing the future. You know, you're immediately changing the, the possibilities and changing the direction of travel as soon as you raise the, the prospect of an opportunity or a threat. So you know, you, any prediction you make is almost guaranteed to be wrong, and, you know, unless, you do, unless you're doing it in secret, putting it in an envelope with your lawyer and you know, pulling it out five years later, say, look, I was right, and no right. one's going to care. Which sort of doesn't really help the client, for sure. <laughs> no one's going to care either i mean like you know, <laughs> that's not a story is it look i made this prediction five years ago and stuck it in, you know stuck it in a vault um so what i'm really doing most of the time is opening up my client's eyes to possibilities and then particularly in terms of those opportunities and threats and and trying to filter those opportunities to get them to fil- to focus on the biggest ones you know what are the ones with the greatest potential impact how do we identify them? How do we filter that number down? And how do we start to take action on them and maybe change the way we act? And this is the, you know, this is the, the second two parts of the book and what they're about is, okay, we've got this vision of the future. What do we do with it? Uh, how do we respond to it? Particularly if it is on these, if these things are on this near horizon, if they're on this two to five year time frame, we've got to move pretty damn fast if we're going to respond to them. So, but you moved fast over the kinds of tools that you either use or they use in order sure. to even identify these these threats on the horizon. So, yes. What do you actually recommend? I mean, it's it's is it a tailored process between you and the client, but or, or are there some of these tools that you can actually take and, and start kind of implementing for yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I talk about two different tool sets in the book: one for looking sort of longer term, and one for looking short term. And so, longer term, something like scenario planning, you know basically telling stories about a possible future in its simplest terms have some ideas about the future tell stories about them there are there's much more structure to it than this and get people to think about what their responses to those different possible futures would be is great if you've got a week loads of people time um, and you know loads of opportunity to do this sort of blue sky thinking and you should do that every few years you should go and think about what might be and your long-term vision but the one you should do more frequently and i recommend it at least every six months a day every six months or 1% of your time is do this really simple process. And I call it intersections because what it says is the things that are going to affect your near-term future are probably predicated on existing pressure points. Things that are already going wrong, challenges you already faced. There are probably some cracks in your business or your industry already. Go and understand those first of all. Go and talk to your customers, your partners. Go and talk to people throughout your business you don't normally talk to and understand what causes pain today for all those people. Once you've got those pressure points, then go and look at the big macro trends in the world. Go and look at what's transforming adjacent industries. Go and look at what the big tech giants are doing to industries that look like yours or your industry and you know i talk about five particular trends that i track in the book but really you, know, you can go and get a so you can get a pretty good handle on a variety of big macro trends by picking up the analyst reports wired magazine the newspapers etc and then what you do is you look for where these big trends are going to intersect with these existing pressure points and you say is this going to make it worse or is it going to make it better and how much better or worse is it going to make it i mean you you, you typically the first time you do this it takes you a while you know, there's some big concepts to get your head around. And about the third time you do it, you do it in about half a day. Mm. And you, you, you end up sketching down like, that's going to hurt, that's going to hurt. Actually, that's going to get much better. You put some rough numbers on, and it really is, you know, these only have to be sort of ballpark figures. And you say, mm. actually, right, those are the five things we're going to deal with. I'm going to investigate those further, find solutions if I need to, repeat this process in six months. And it's, you know, the whole process is incredibly cathartic apart from anything else. People love to talk about what's causing them pain. And even if you only did that pressure points bit, it's incredibly valuable. I mean, the number of 
times I've been into I've got an organization, they've said, go and do this process for us. And the first thing I've done is just go and talk to lots of people. I've gone and talked to customers, gone and talked to partners, gone and talked to people at the bottom to the top of the organization. And then come back to the board and gone, did you know this? And they're like, no, I had no idea. You know, mm. I, I, I give some examples in the book, like you know, one organization where they'd invested loads of money in software to move information really slickly through the business. And you actually go and talk to some of the, the, the administrators who are moving this information. And one woman said to me, and it's just stuck in my head so strongly, she said, we have a chasing culture. So for all the software we've got, nothing happens unless I pick up the phone. And mm. you go back and you report this and you go, look, your systems are broken. They look beautiful, they look shiny. Nothing happens unless people pick up the phone because you never changed the culture. You never embedded these processes. And this is going to kill you. This is going to hurt you. And it did. You know, it had hurt that company to the tune of tens of thousands, if not uh, hundreds of thousands of pounds, because on one of those phone calls, there was a, a transcription error and a zero got added to an order. Wow. Tom, a lot of the old kind of approaches to this would be that you actually, you know, either invited an external party and, you know, got inspired in like an offsite session or you, you know, outsourced all of your future thinking to, uh, to a strategy unit or sometimes a future unit in an organization in and of itself. Is that still a viable way to do it? And, and, and if not, you know, how do you involve a much larger part of the organization in these discussions? Because presumably you can have three smart people working in a basement and then emerging, you know, and telling the company, this is what we're up to. Uh, but it would seem to me that it's far more powerful if you, you know, if you have 10,000 people to involve a, a much larger group, but that that's also very tricky to do. And, you know, everyone has their day job. So how do you recommend that they approach this issue? So the first thing is, is bringing in outside people is a really good idea because, you know, so many organizations, particularly you go into organizations where the average tenure of an employee is like 14 years or 15 years. And they, they've all gone to the same universities, <coughs> excuse me, all been through the same management training. And, you know, they've all, and um, they all think in exactly the same way. So bringing in outside people, particularly a really diverse range of people is really valuable at that point. But, you know, much as I would love to be taking everybody's money and going and leading all these sessions, you need to do this too frequently and you need to get the new mindset that this requires much more embedded in the business. Now, and you, and you know, I say to organizations, every single leader needs to have 1% of their time released to think about the future. And 1% doesn't sound like a lot. But, you know, once you actually start to do it practically, carving out a full day every six months just to focus with an open mind on the future people really struggle with. So I say start with 1% and then grow it. And organizations are doing this. This is what I really love. And it's something that feels really changed over the last few years is I'm now going into massive organizations like BMW. And, you know, and work, you know, doing a session on their internal leadership training program. And they're teaching people what they call ambidextrous leadership. You know, they're saying, okay, we've built our success on continuous process optimization. We've just got better and better and better at doing what we do. And these days we make, you know, incredible cars. But do you know what? Our industry is changing and we can't change fast enough unless all of you are involved in that process. So this ambidexterity says that on one hand, we've got to keep getting better at doing what we do. We can't stop improving. But on the other hand, I want every single one of you to be an innovator, to be an entrepreneur. I want you to learn these skills. And we, will teach, we will invest in you and teach you these skills to go and think about the future, to go and think about what could be different, to go and think about change. I want you to carve out a portion of your time to go and do that. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a very powerful perspective. That, that uh, perspective, I believe, actually comes from uh, my, my uh, Harvard uh, colleague here, Mike, Mike Tushman, who, who wrote on the ambidextrous organization. So that, that is, starts, turns out that that research is, is really getting out there. It's a while back since he wrote that seminal article, but um, that's, that is where the game's at, right? To, to, to keep both, both thoughts in, in, in your mind at the same time. Let's move to some of the specific things. You said five macro trends. If we look at the forces shaping tomorrow, and this is maybe when you can comment a little bit on COVID-19 as well. We, the two of us are, are sort of situated in the two absolutely most surprising countries to have been hit extremely hard by COVID, right? For one. You know, United States and the UK, the old world order, these were the two countries leading the future. 
you would think we had predicted these things, we had teams to respond to them, and nothing would surprise us about these things. Because, you know, we've jointly sent people, you know, to the moon, fought wars, uh, you know, uh, toppled dictators, done a lot of things together as nations over, over well, you know, first we fought each other and then we fought the rest of the world. It's an interesting discussion, right? Yeah. But now these two countries have been arguably, and let's look at it from this perspective, kind of surprised by the future. So why don't we start with this? And then if you can use that to kind of unbundle which specific things are shaping tomorrow. And, you know, on my podcast, I think, uh, you know, 10 years in, but I, I don't mind looking at things two to five years as well. No, I mean, you know, 10 years is fun. And I you know, do get involved in that longer range. Look, you know, I think we're both in, um, in countries that have they were maybe until recently we would have called mature democracies and now we might call slightly senile democracies you know they've um they're both having fundamental structural issues of different types you yep. know the complete lack of, of bipartisanship and the, you know, the, the sort of rancorous relationship between the two sides in the US, which has kind of crippled the, the prospect of rapid progress politically there. Uh, and in the UK, a, a, an incredible over-centralization of power. Um, we, are, we have the most ridiculous centralization of, of capability in terms of spending and tax-raising power in the UK, which leaves very little scope for rapid local response. And if you, if you, if you look at the, um, actually, the local responses on the ground here in the UK have been, despite being desperately underfunded, have been very capable. You know, local authorities and local organizations, by and large, have done very, very well, given the limited opportunities that they had. Whereas by comparison, this sort of uh, oversized, slow, um, overly ideological central government has performed incredibly badly. Um, and so, you know, the result, you combine that with, I think, also a level of hubris in both countries, a level of overconfidence based on that history you talked about. You know, that the, the combination of those two things has caught us completely unawares. We did not have the, the structures for rapid response, which these days are increasingly small-scale and distributed rather than large-scale and centralised. Um, combine that with a sort of overconfidence meant that we were, we were ripe to be hit very very hard by this and you know i think the what's what's you can sort of see the um the current protests the quite the sort of conspiracy theory protests about what has caused covid19 attributing it to you know bill gates putting microchips in people's heads or you know 5g towers or whatever it may be i think you can directly connect that back to the level of surprise in a population who are so used to being on top of things they can't believe that um, suddenly the rug's been pulled out from under their feet by anything other than some sort of giant conspiracy. You know, Tom, I wanted to address one thing, which is uh, surprising that it sort of came up in this way, but the conspiracy theories in and of this, themselves uh, are tied somehow to the skepticism against expertise because expertise, I mean, this is my view, you know, gets tied into government power in some way. And, and, you know, and everything you're saying is about, you know, what is the appropriate governance level to deal with these things? But, but in order to have some sort of governance, you, you need a legitimate governance and it needs to be based on something. And usually it's evidence-based power, right? Uh, so so what, we're, what are we dealing with here in terms of, um, you know, what's, what's happening to, to the way that people perceive uh, expertise. Let, let, I mean, you could pick the UK, which is uh, interesting uh, from that perspective. Have people lost faith in experts, or is it that the experts don't actually have the answers? And you know, and maybe it's more complicated than that. Well, I think you know, it's more complicated than that. Is probably what's going to be on my tombstone um, because I think the. People love simple answers, right? People love simple answers. You know, you can you can argue that you know, religion is largely down to people's love of simple answers. You know, I, I don't want to go into the complexities of how life evolved. I like the idea of a creator that makes sense to me. It gives shape to my worldview. Um, and you know, I, I totally sort of uh, appreciate that. And you know, the, the complicated answers 
that experts tend to give these days because we live in a world of, you know, of, of quantum technology and, you know, synthetic biology and, you know, 200 years of, of academic study of political theory. I mean, when experts give answers, it's very hard to give answers to the simple stories. Yes is no is black and white anymore. They give answers that challenge you and force you to in, uh, engage and actually, you know, are generally quite ambiguous as well. But I don't think you can divorce this sort of rejection of experts, particularly when it comes to government power, from that level of governance. You know, our, our political elite, and I think and this is true in both countries, seem so distant now. They are so abstracted away from the everyday experience, and particularly from the things that most people care about on a day-to-day -day basis. Like, what do most of my neighbours care about in terms of politics? They care about levels of traffic on the road. They care about whether their bins get collected. They care about you know, when the drains are blocked. You know, they care about lots of stuff that, that has the greatest, most obvious impact on their day-to-day -day lives that they never hear the big-name politicians ever talking about. And so I think if you bring, if you, if you decentralise some of that power, bring it closer to people so that they can see cause and effect much more clearly, when I vote, when I contact my political representative, I can see that they have the, that they A, respond, and B, they have the power to respond, and it connects me much more closely to that power. The more abstracted it is, and the more ambiguous it is, I think the more attractive it is to believe in things that are simple, clear, and black or white. But, but where does that bring us? Because I, I, I think I agree wholeheartedly with your analysis. And I think the big contraction that's happening at the moment is that our existing governance levels uh, are either, uh, they are uh, uncomfortably located at kind of the middle, the meso level. They're, they're not macro enough. So the bigger challenges we have are global. So they're, you know, climate change, big things, even technology, you could lump it in there because it has to do with massive changes that would have to become infrastructure technologies. And once they do, if we do it right, they can have impact over time. And then you have all of these local concerns, which, you know, people were always very local, you know, the, the things people cared about, you know, since, uh, since the morning of time, you know, they have been local concerns. And so there's this enormous kind of contraction of power towards the middle, the national level, if you will, or maybe even some of these larger regional levels. And it's, it's just not responding to the challenge that we are facing I mean, today. In, in a country the size of the UK, for me, it's about letting go of your um, attachment to the nation state as the, as the primary vehicle for your identity yeah, and, and for your political power. It's just the wrong size for our age. As you say, yeah, we need supranational infrastructure in terms of tax harmonization, climate change response, etc. Countries just aren't big enough. But at the same time, they're far too big for the things that genuinely people feel have a day-to-day -day impact on their lives. And so that you need this much more, this rather than this sort of this centralization, this sort of um, focus of, of power in, in, in this weirdly, um, you know, um, uh, anachronistic and, and also ill-fitting space in the centre. You need it at the bottom and at the top much more. You know, I'm very, very curious about what is going to happen to the UK. I mean, I, I lived there during one of those times with, uh, you know, I, I was working in a financial district in London during one of the, uh, those times of riots. And I, I just basically just couldn't really deal, deal with that. We, we left for what we thought was a more peaceful place on, on the planet. <laughs> of course, was, we're wrong again. But, uh, but what's going to happen now after this? I mean, there's been Brexit. So, you know, the British people have said we don't like well, I don't know exactly what they don't like, but they don't like this particular instantiation of over-nationalization and, and the particularly European approach to it. But I, but I don't think it would be fair to say that it means that the UK people have said no to a larger governance or, you know, organization of governance, right? It depends which ones you ask. If you go and ask the sort of the QAnon uh, protesters in London right now, they probably they think that uh, all supranational organisations are part of some terrible conspiracy. And sadly, they're a growing they're a growing number. You know, they're a growing bunch. But no, you know, it was a very very narrow split between. Um, between uh, for and against Brexit, and you can read, you, you can analyse that so many different ways. I mean, go and read you know, "Revolt on the Right" by Rob, by my friend Rob Ford, 
um, you know, who really explains a lot of the, the weird coalition of um, old school uh, left wing, primarily men, uh, combined with old school right wing men uh, that came together to create the the, the pro Brexit vote. It was a very weird. Um, sort of, you know, combination of, of, of a similar age group, but very, very different politically who came together to, to produce that result, um, combined with lots of other things as well, and possibilities of uh, external influences, etc. But no, I think you know, the, the, the picture, you know, someone who's incredibly European, you know, my wife's half German, my mum's a professor of French, you know, I, I grew up in a very European household. Um, the prospects for Britain in the next few years are not good. I mean, they're not... Um, you know, it, it's a, uh, I, I always say to my clients, you know, I'm a long-term optimist, but short-term pessimist. And that's, that's true at a global scale. And it's particularly true at a UK scale at the moment. And, but again, though, it's in the, in the very local areas, if you look at what's happening here in Manchester, you know, where we've got a you know, relatively popular mayor with rising levels of executive control and local local um, tax and spend capabilities, uh, where you've got quite strong communities, where you've got a real sense of local identity. You know, in many ways, the, the story here is going to be quite positive. You know, we're, we're economically, we're doing very well in this region, or at least we were pre-COVID. Um, you can see quite a strong future. And, and actually, you know, Manchester is an international city has you know it looks quite positive but the uk as a whole and certainly when you get into the smaller towns and cities that don't have that international appeal like manchester you know, then it starts to feel really quite bleak and if i look back at the town slash city the small town small city where i grew up uh, in the west midlands you know things look pretty bleak right there you know it's interesting because you know it, it would be easy to just have these discussions about, you know, what will the next decade bring as if the next decade brings the same thing for everyone. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, some of the ambiguity you speak to because we can talk up and down about, and we could bring it back now to technology, right? And, you know, so, so what, what do all of these forces and COVID and other things, how does that change the trajectory of some of the technologies that we, I guess, were talking about a little bit earlier, you know, quantum, you know, all these new technologies. But, but the truth of the matter is, of course, that they won't, no matter what happens to them, they will not affect each city and town the same way, and they won't affect you know, uh, the rich and the poor the same way or the elites in various ways. So how, what is your thinking on that? And what is your message when you go into an organization, which, you know, by and large, a multinational, you know, the, the employee pool, you know, they're paid a certain amount of money. So they are part of an elite, mo most of them. But it, it could also be true for an organization that the outcomes are going to be wildly different. Well, you know, if you are in the mid middle of an organization and the entire rationale for what you were doing is going to disappear, then that's one message. And if you happen to be in that you know, category that we talked about earlier, that is practicing the three C's, now it doesn't matter to you what happens to the organization. You will survive and, you know, you're uh, ethos will, will be the perfect one for the future. Uh, how do you see that playing out? So I, I always say to clients, we're not interested in the future. We're interested in your future, which is like what you say. It's, it's a, everyone has a very different future. Things are going to affect different people differently. And you know, one, of, one of the big, those big five macro trends that I, that I look at a lot, and it's the one I hope to write a book about next, is about choice and diversity. And this is very much a product of technology. Your technology has lowered the friction involved in creativity and not just creativity, but bringing those creations to market. You know, whether they are, you know, pieces of media, whether they are products and services. You know, when I started my first business in 2005, it took me six weeks to get a bank account set up, to get my company registered with the government, to get my, um, you know, to, to sort out my accounts for the first time, you know, to do all these things that you have to do. And you, know, you can genuinely do it in 20 minutes now on a sofa with a glass of wine in your hand. You know, the, the worst thing that used to happen when I was slightly drunk was I'd wake up in the morning, you know, having bought something I shouldn't have done on eBay. And now I wake up having accidentally started a business. You know, it, it's so easy to do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, you know, what that, what that means is there's this incredible amount of diversity of choice, which leads to in really interesting things. So you see this in the sort of cultural fracture that we have now, where actually it's not just about, you know, 
again, you know, when I was at school, there was two tribes, right? There was there was the indie kids who were into you know indie music from primarily from Manchester and the surrounding areas, the Stone Roses and people, but also in Nirvana and sort of the grunge scene. And they wore their sort of black Doc Martins and their black jeans and their German army shirts and their band t-shirts and all that slightly long grungy hair. And then you had the ravers, you know, the dance music kids with their brand new shiny Reebok classics and their, you know, the glow sticks and their bag of tapes. You know, and we were two tribes because we were defined by geography. Whereas now if you go into a school and talk to kids about, you know, well, who are the two tribes here? Who are the mods and the rockers or the indie kids and the ravers? They'll look at you like you are mad because mm. there are, there's no two tribes anymore. It's incredibly fractured and they all sort of self-define based on this huge array of possible identities that they've picked up on online and that they share with, with audiences around the world online. So you get this, there's a cultural fracture happening. At the same time, you get this incredible complexity in supply chains and competition you know the, the advent of things like alibaba a few years ago you know really rapidly disrupted industries that hadn't really been touched by the internet uh, wave yet i mean the, the example i frequently give is, is kitchens you know there used to be about sort of 10 companies doing kitchens in the uk uh, and as alibaba came into the uk um, i was standing up in front of them talking about the future of kitchen design and they hadn't heard of Alibaba. So, you know, through the web page, I've typed in kitchen units and, you know, 4,000 suppliers pop up, you know, undercutting all these companies by 50%. All of a sudden, their supply chains start to look much more complex as does their competition. How extreme, Tom, do you think the decentralization and this diversity will go? Because there's also the counter argument that, okay, fine. So the nation state, uh, you know, is challenged culturally by many of these things. And, and these uh, school, these oppressive school environments with two cultures you had to fit into, luckily, I would say, are going away. But on the other hand, right, if you look at innovation districts and things, Silicon Valley, at least until COVID, stood up pretty well against the rest for loads of different reasons that, you know, um, many uh, people have written about having to do with critical mass. And, and you, you know, arguably in Manchester, both culturally and technologically, you are one of those hotspots, uh, you know, in, in the world, arguably. Now, to what extent do you still need critical mass to really have impact? And to what extent will it you know, further disassemble into really a, a, a more of a global uh, pattern, a patchwork of, of kind of innovation and cultural expression that starts to, to matter? You know, in other words, you know, could a TikTok star these days truly come from anywhere? Or is that just something we imagine? And in fact, they don't come from anywhere. They come from very specific niches and subcultures that aren't everywhere. So, I mean, I think that that issue of critical mass is a really interesting one. And, you know, I would argue, I think there's a good argument to be made that Silicon Valley was surviving on inertia rather than uh, rather than being still being propelled forward, if you like. You know, that can, once you've got that critical mass, it keeps going, even if the sort of the engine died a little bit. And uh, I think you know, there's some argument, perhaps, that even pre-COVID, that was true of Silicon Valley, where actually you are starting to see this this greater distribution um, of interesting companies. Uh, venture, I mean, venture capital is still very, very tightly held, tightly controlled. But actually, you know, given the the state of uh, you know, interest rates, etc. People have been looking for lots of different ways to spend their money. So cash has been relatively available despite the sort of the downturn of the last 10, 12 years and available in lots of places and for lots of people. Likewise, at the same time, the costs of innovation have come down for a lot of domains, not all domains, but in a lot of places, it's been, it's become much, much cheaper to innovate and use, do something new and do something different. And you know, TikTok's been quite an interesting example of this because the technology that people are using to do successful content there has been around a while but they took this what is now very very cheap technology uh, and used it to create really a new art form i mean it is a new art form uh, that's been done there i saw one this week uh, a friend of mine on social media who's in the nuclear industry it was sharing this this um somebody doing you know doing a short form piece um, of, with incredible design values, explaining why nuclear power is good using gummy bears. I mean, um, you know, and it, it was, it looked like something that sort of Kylie Jenner might produce, and yet it was about nuclear power. You know, it, it's, it's, um, it, it's really this incredible art form. So I, I do think we're getting you know, this, this much greater distribution at the same time you don't lose the incredible power of geographic connection. 
Um, it might spread and the better public transport is, the better transport options are, the more geographic, the greater the geographical area that can be considered part of that critical mass. But you know, all, I can't see any technology coming down the pipeline, however powerful, that is, gives us greater bandwidth and richness and depth in our communication than meeting face-to-face -face over a coffee, a coffee or a couple of beers, particularly if you've got a, you know, a stack of A4 and a couple of pens in front of you to scribble ideas on. Tom, I'm so uh, intrigued about that myself. I mean, I've been interested in the future of work for my whole life. My PhD over 20 years ago was about the future of work, I guess. And, you know, my, the title was What the Net Can't Do. I, I was looking at all these visions of how the future workplace would change. You know, this was in 1999 to 2002. And I was in the middle of this hype making in the valley, actually. Uh, but it, it just struck me as I was writing that you know, human being, we are not a virtual species yet. So even if the technologies were available, which many believe they were already back in 1999, and now we are in this sort of next sort of hype wave where people say, well, now we are so much better. Our technologies are all there, plus there's COVID. So now undoubtedly we're all going to start working from home and never see each other ever again. And, you know, this argument rests on this completely missed, uh, or this complete misnomer of, of uh, human beings being now suddenly overnight a virtual species, you know, as if flesh and blood doesn't matter anymore. We're embodied creatures, right? I mean, people, it's a very sort of sci-fi trope that you can sort of isolate the mind or the soul from the body and, and separate it out. And it's just, it's so far from true. It's just not accurate. I mean, young people, for all the time they might want to spend on, on computers and phones, they still want to have sex, right? These things are still imperatives. You know, these yeah. things are not going away anytime soon. We still need that physical contact. We still need thrills actually one of the things that came out of this future holiday report is i think there's a huge market for risk in the next few years you know as our lives have got more isolated uh, and more safe uh, and we're sort of more mollycoddled actually i think there's gonna be a huge market for risky activities in the next few years that's super interesting a market for risk uh, in, in an environment where some risks are not worth it but others are so I mean, the example I gave was um, was track days and motorsport. You know, motorsport with particularly with the switch to electric, we've got these incredibly high performance vehicles uh, that can do you know, which are, are potentially much much safer. But most of us you know, are not going to be. I mean, it's going to take a long time before the self driving car is truly fully self driving. I think thirty years um, to be to be safe and licensed and everything else. But I think yeah, the less we drive and the more and the safer our driving on the road becomes, the more we're going to crave risk elsewhere. Yeah, let's stop for two seconds, and then I do want to move to how you uh, yourself stay up to date and track trends and other futurists and and people that you you know my listeners should should tune into. But but just stay for a second on this idea of augmented reality and even some of the invasive. I mean, I don't know if were you watching the Neuralink demo uh, last week or I guess it's ten days ago now. I was glued to the to the screen over it. That is, I mean, truly futuristic, isn't it? It is. I mean, I watched the highlights because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a skeptic about these things, not about the possibilities of the technology, but actually about the demand for the technology. You, know, you, you look at the history of computing the last 60 years. We've gone from, you know, punched cards and typing machine code into a green screen. We're literally communicating with an alien on its terms to now where I can shout across the room and I won't say its name because it will respond. But my voice assistant one time until we'll play the song I actually want, you know, that's an incredible shift in terms of, 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 of intuitiveness. And you know, we, we talk about how much processing power and how cheap processing power is. Now, we don't talk about what use we put it to. So much of, the, of that processing power has just been put to making the simplest computing actions easier to use. They've been put into the user interface through graphics, through audio processing, next wave through computer vision, just to make you know, computing power accessible. And that's obviously going to continue. I'm a big believer in mixed reality because it's the next natural step on that journey. It's just making computing power more accessible, easier to use, more intuitive. That's kind of why we'll do it. 
But uh, but augmented and mixed reality uh, is is actually different from, and I guess that's the distinction, right? So there's enormously pent up and an increasing demand for augmentation, you know, in many forms, both as entertainment and actually in the manufacturing side of things. Uh, but going from that into a full virtual reality or to BCI, uh, brain-computer integration, that for you is, it's not even 10 years. It's, it's, it's way, way into so the what, future. The question has to be, why do we need brain-computer? Why, you know, why do we need a you know, human-computer interface in the, in the brain? You know, machines have got, are getting better and better at doing what we want them to do without us having to ask explicitly. You know, my central heating manages itself now. I never touch that dial because it just knows what I want and it does it. You know, once you've got mixed reality, once you've got you're permanently wearing a pair of glasses with two cameras in that are measuring your heart rate, your breathing, galvanic skin response, maybe some sort of you know, remote neural interface as well that understands your emotional response to what's going on. It knows so much about you that why does it need to ask you what you want? Why do you need to tell it? Why just give it some authority and let it take some decisions for for you and you know, like we mentioned Kellogg's was one of my clients earlier you know one of the things I said to them was look I, I travel a lot I spend a lot of time in hotels at least I did pre-COVID I come down to breakfast one morning and I pour myself a bowl of cereal and my you know smart glasses observe this bowl of cereal and the brand they do a bit of a look up on the nutrition and they understand that I'm enjoying it by looking at my heart rate, my breathing, the way my eyes are moving, etc. It's like, mm, Tom is enjoying this more than his usual bran flakes. Actually, let's, you know, let's, let's compare the nutritional values. Do you know what? This is only marginally worse for him and it's only marginally more expensive, but he's enjoying it a lot more. On his next shop, let's replace his bran flakes with Cereal X, right? So mm. when I come home, I find my brown face replaced with cereal eggs. It's like, fantastic. I really enjoyed that cereal. Thank you, personal assistant. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's an incredible challenge for brands and marketers. But, you know, it, it, it's an incredible challenge to this idea that we need some sort of conscious interface to the machine as well. Well, well, what are the form factors? I mean, you mentioned Glass and Google Glass famously kind of uh, bombed on the consumer interface, perhaps because they were a decade too early. And now Google Glass Enterprise is still around and is arguably going to be very, very important for maintenance workers. Are yeah. there other interfaces than, than glasses? Uh, you know, and then you have the VR headsets that are currently, I guess, more, more helpful for AR really than VR because they're immersive, but they're not really virtual are they um, no i mean you know, vr for me remains a niche proposition it's still you know people still have serious issues with sickness with it it's a fantastic technology and there's, there's a brilliant company near here called draw and code in liverpool uh, who produce a lot of the, the really heavyweight ar and vr content for the big brands in the world and i i got to go and spend a day there last year just playing just playing with it yeah. they hadn't released yet but they're working on some incredible big brand stuff they let me play with it and it, you know, it's staggering it's beautiful and it's brilliant and i really enjoyed it but it had, didn't have an awful lot of day-to-day -day use. And you know, yeah. the technology is just not there yet in terms of doing a photorealistic overlay of objects that I can physically interact with on the physical world. That's what it needs to be. It needs to yeah. engage my lizard brain that has been you know, understanding how to interact with the physical world for, for millions of years. It's got to be that easy and that intuitive, and it's not quite there yet. Yeah. In terms of Google, Google Glass is really interesting. You know, people always say that you know, Google Glass was a failed product, and I say it was a successful experiment. You know, it taught us exactly what you said. It was too early. The interface was wrong for a consumer perspective. I mean, it's just it's not intuitive at all. Yeah. Um, compared to what we will be able to do in five, 10 years' time. Right. All right, let's, let's now in earnest move to you know, how, how you yourself track these things. Because we've been talking and, and you we're both, you know, I've more recently embraced the futurist label, but regardless, I, I've been a futurist for 20 years just without knowing it. I, I look into deep technology and other disruptive forces and I try to make sense of the world as it is emerging. And you definitely do the same. How do you go about staying up to date? Who do you get inspired by? How, what can you recommend my listeners tuning into that? Even if they've heard about those names before, it, there's just so much out there. So if you could be useful in kind of reducing the garble and noise into something that could turn into a signal. So there's a bit of a get out here, which is I'm quite mercenary about what I'm researching. So I, I will go and spend you know, six weeks doing a deep dive in a particular topic. And, and I'll read all of the, the industry analysts, the, you know, the, the, the news articles, all the stuff in that domain, go and interview the right people. But then I get out of it again. 
And so a lot of that knowledge sort of stays there and is really useful for the next couple of years. But actually, then I'm on to the next thing. And so it's, you know, I mean, but most people aren't going to have the opportunity. You know, I, I also have opportunities that other people don't in terms of academics. So, you know, a good example is the National Graphene Institute here in Manchester, uh, where graphene was discovered. You know, I get to go and sit in and listen to, you know, Nobel Prize winners talk about, you know, grilling their PhD students on their, on their research and understanding that stuff. So that, that's a phenomenal opportunity for me. But in terms of generalist stuff, you know, I'm a big fan of, I'm, I love audio content. Um, and so the things I tend to listen to when I'm, I, I have this rule that when I'm sitting, I'm writing, but when I'm walking, I'm listening. Um, and that tends to be things like, you know, audio podcasts like, you know, Radio Lab and 99% Invisible, really simple stuff like that. Uh, things from the RSA um, and the London School of Economics uh, both have podcast series based on their event series. And so you get, you know, these sort of world-leading speakers doing 20 to 30-minute praises of their latest books in an incredibly digestible format, followed by some of the smartest people in the room asking them really difficult questions, and you get the answers to those as well. And so those things are a really good format for keeping a sort of general overview on things like, you know, sociology, culture, politics. Um, and then from a, from a technology point of view, I actually have less of a generalist intake these days. And um, the Financial Times is fantastic for analysis. I'm a big uh, reader of the Financial Times. Um, but yeah, it's it, it, those, those bits of audio content that I can take in in half an hour when I'm in between two other things that, that keep me sort of abreast of the general sort of um, where the conversation's at. And in terms of your fellow futurists, do you do you track those or do you just sort of see them as comp competition? No, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, they're absolutely competition, right? You know, we, we're, we're frequently sure. going for the same speaking gigs or the same um, you know, research projects, um, but I'm really, really interested in their output. So I, I collaborated um, with a, 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 a 28 other futurists recently um, on a book called Aftershocks and Opportunities, uh, where we all contributed a chapter about the post-COVID world. Um, and that was excellent, actually. That was, that was a really, really interesting process and uh, you know, really interesting book. Um, so that was put together by, uh, by another futurist company called Fast Future. Um, but I, I absolutely keep an eye on what people like Nicholas Badminton and others are saying. Um, just I'm really interested. And I'm also really interested when we disagree as well. Um, so, for example, there's a, a lot of futurists now talking about de-urbanization in this sort of post-COVID world, people moving to remote work, thinking the cities are going to start to depopulate. Uh, and, and I completely disagree with them. So that's always good fun. <laughs> yeah, that is good fun. So um, you, you mentioned you're on to the next, uh, next book. What, what, what is Tom up to next? So I, I really want to write about choice. You know, there's been lots of interesting writ books written about choice in the past, like the choice paradox um, about 15 years ago. Um, but I think it's time for us some new thinking about the range of choice we have and how those choices are made, and particularly the role of AI in making those choices for us. Um, I did some research for Salesforce a few years ago, actually for what is now a division of Salesforce, when it was still called a company called Demandware, um, but it was bought by Salesforce before the project was finished. Uh, and we looked to the future of retail and one of the things that really interested me was how people's choices the way people choose has changed and the influence on their choices has changed you know, because we are um, so connected now to our peers day in day out in this sort of you know, sort of virtual sixth sense we have for what our friends and family are doing that peers had overtaken celebrities television radio everything as a form of influence on their buying behavior um, and you know, television had dropped to the bottom of the stack already. This is sort of four years ago now. Um, obviously, social media influencers had some old play, but this, the, the, you know, how do we make decisions? How's the buying process changed? And most importantly, how's it going to change with things like these personal digital assistants I talked about that may do some of the buying for us? Hmm. Interesting. So, Tom, you might be a creature of the future, not just a futurist, right? Because uh, as we have talked about how organizations get ready for the future, it just struck me right now on a last note that, you know, one of the reasons why you will survive as an individual in a world where it's really tricky to pick up all of these strands of information is that you really you have your organization set up already don't you and you go to the graph uh, graphene institutes and you are set up uh, you know you, you are seeking all of the same things that someone who who had a multinational you know who was the ceo of a multinational corporation you have the same type of knowledge inputs available to you just in a more networked format with more 
free exchanges of information and trading kind of knowledge uh, tidbits, this uh, tit for tat. Um, it is an interesting model of the future, but not everyone can replicate it, right? It took you a while to to get to that position. So how, what do you, you know, as a final word to, to people who may not be as lucky as that, or, uh, you know, are in an organization with 10,000 employees uh, where they themselves might be lucky enough to have this kind of privileged position, but how do they advise the rest of their organizations? What is your kind of final advice to, to that situation? How, how should we approach this, you know, on a more mass scale? Yeah, I think with an open mind, you're absolutely right. It took me a long time to build the network. It took me a long time to get out of the old cultures of ways of working, of being at my desk nine to five and understanding what actually added value and what didn't. But iterate, you know, try something, fail, try something, fail, try something, fail, and do it in the way you work, the way you operate. Just accept that the future is different, that business as usual is not going to generate success, certainly not sustainable success. And so, you know, get that open mind, test yourself. And particularly, if I was going to give anybody a great piece of advice is to go and get a new hobby. Like step out of work and go and, you know, reawaken those three C's we talked about, those abilities of curation, creation, and communication. Go and get yourself a new hobby. It might be building an electric vehicle like me. It might be roller skating like me, although do wear pads if you do. And, uh, and just, you know, just, just jumpstart those creative and communicative juices. Fantastic advice. I think if uh, if my family heard I'm going to take on just another new hobby right now, they might kill me because I take on one for probably every two weeks or something. But uh, for other people, this is the right advice. Thank you so much, Tom. Brilliant. Thank you, John. You have just listened to episode 32 of the Futurized podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was Future Proof Your Business. Our guest was Tom Cheesewright, UK futurist, regular BBC commentator and author of the new book Future Proof Your Business. In this conversation, we talked about the role of a futurist in a fast-moving world, the tools needed to predict future trends in your industry, and how to build in agility, the forces shaping tomorrow, and how the pandemic has changed leaders' thinking, preparing for future shocks and what the next decade might bring. My takeaway is that the future will not be the same for everyone. It all depends. What steps do you take? What skills do you build? What is your organizational agility? What social group do you belong to? Where do you live? What governance structures are you subject to? In terms of growth, Tom Cheeseride talks about the importance of the three C's, curation, creation, and communication, each of which he sees as so complex and multifaceted that you can only ever be an expert on aspects of it in one lifetime. So you may be great on stage, but still a poor listener, or poor with digital design tools, for example. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.